Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. There is no square inch over which Christ does not declare his sovereignty, including social media. Now, if we actually believed that, our Twitter feeds and Facebook posts would look very different. In this episode, we're going to confront the double standard that allows us to treat people decently when we're face-to-face, but abominably when we're on the internet. So don't click on that post button and don't hit send just yet. Before you release another angry rant, let's think about how to stay Christian on social media. One of the things I always admired about my professors in college was the editorial cartoons that they would collect and post on the doors to their offices. Some of them were just yellowed with age and had been up there, no telling how long. And so inspired by them over the years, I've collected little comics and held on to them. And so I have a few on my wall. Uh, I have one that is a group of barbarians riding on horses and then there's a guy in a tweed jacket with a pipe and it is called uh, something like barbarians and a professor of barbarian studies <laughs> nice. and then there's another one that has curious george and it says uh, calvinist bedtime stories it's like george is a bad monkey and very depraved and so i've held on to that one uh, one that always reminds me of my brother And it is a guy on the moon, and he's twisting off his space helmet, and it's it's a libertarian astronaut. And he's taking off his helmet, and he's saying, screw NASA and their helmet laws. And that one always cracked me up. But there's one that I've seen a number of times on the internet that I think is, is, it's funny, but also uh, too true. And it's the one where the wife is trying to get the guy to go to bed, but he's sitting at his desktop computer and he can't go to bed because someone is wrong on the internet. Yes. And he's got to correct them. (laughs) I'm old enough to where I remember when we used to sit at desktop computers late at night in order to post things on the internet. Now, with the uh, advent of smartphones, we can just lay in bed (laughs) and correct people on the internet at the same time. But, but there's something about that compulsion, right, that, that we're constantly aware of people's wrong opinions and then kind of get sucked into that, that rabbit hole of trying to answer back that, that's uh, frustrating, but also feels like maybe it says something, like it reveals something about the modern condition. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's certainly like what Twitter has become over the years and I think is known now more than anything just for people calling out other people for their wrong beliefs, wrong views. And, and I think some people love it for that, which is a weird thing. But um, do you think that all social media platforms have a tendency to Twitterize in that way? Because it does feel to me like, like Facebook has had that journey where I think in the beginning it was, it was much more, you know, varied, but, but not so focused on just arguing with people, but then it became more like that. I feel like 
Instagram, which, mm-hmm. you know, was like just posting photos, <laughs> has suddenly turned into a version of that same kind of combative atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. And I don't know why. I mean, what do you think? What What's going on there? I mean, it's a good question. I, I guess the platform isn't really what's important. It's more, you know, what people want to do when they're online. And so I think there's just a lot of people who see online engagement as a way to express their opinions mm-hmm. and to, you know, curate a sense of identity through that process. You know, a lot of times uh, people will talk about expressive individualism as sort of the besetting sin of our culture, that we're all so self-obsessed and we're, we're very, uh, to use uh, a word that probably needs air quotes, performative in our behavior. We're always putting on an act and trying to manage how we come off to other people. And of course, online behavior, it encourages that way of, of operating. And so I, I think maybe that's it, that, that at least right now, when we go online, that's the kind of thing that, that we're interested in doing. Mm-hmm. And so every platform becomes, you know, another version of that, maybe with differences, um, you know, the platform might encourage longer posts rather than, than the short ones on Twitter. Uh, so they have different form, you know, if you're, if you're, Arguing with people on Reddit, that looks different than yeah. if you're arguing with people on Twitter or Instagram. But at least to me, it has the same kind of feeling and it, it conveys the same set of frustrations. I don't know about you, but I've had this experience where people I really admire, either in real life or through their work, like I've, I've read their books or whatever, and then I encounter them in social media and it's not just that they're not likable, it's that they just don't seem as intelligent hmm. as they do in their work. Yeah. You know, their views turn out to be a lot more tribal and conventional. Uh, they they have a tendency to, you know, do nothing but burn straw men 24-7. <laughs> and you just come away sometimes disappointed that people that you thought were were really exceptional hmm. are actually quite typical and so i don't know i I, influenced by that experience i've tried to avoid proving to people how typical i am (laughs) you know by by following the proverb and and not opening my mouth and and showing how foolish i am i guess oh very wise of you i have wondered sometimes which is the truer self Mm. if if we can i think we can say that you know, the persona that we create online is a genuine reflection of who we are. Even if it's not 100% true, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's from us. But then if you can admire a scholar's work on the one hand and then encounter them on social media and find them less than respectable, you know, which, which is the true self there? Yeah, I mean, I think the temptation is to think that the worst version is the true version. Yeah. But I don't think that's right. I I do think there's something about the medium. There's something about the environment. Uh, In the same way that, you know, if you put a a very intelligent and idiosyncratic thinker in a mob, that person will be influenced by the 
you know, behavior of the people around them as much as anyone else. I think it's the same way that you accommodate yourself to what's expected in the environment to some extent. And so unless you're, you're actively pushing back, you're going to kind of go with the flow to some extent. And so I, I don't agree that, that somehow we're revealing our true selves in these environments right. and that face-to-face interaction or uh, who we are in a book is, is more manufactured. I think it's the opposite, that mm-hmm. even though social media interactions often feel more spontaneous and they are not uh, edited or scrutinized as much, I think they're not always as reflective of the, the real, um, like, considered views of the people who are, are putting them out there. Um, maybe that's painting with too broad a brush. You know, I'm sure for some people, their truest self is the, the troll that you encounter yeah. online. Right. But uh, in my, you know, relatively limited experience, I've known a lot of people who in everyday life were thoughtful and considerate, did understand why other people saw things differently than they did. But if you only knew them online, you would just have a completely different idea mm-hmm. of who this person was. And I think, I, I, I'm trying to think, I don't think there's a single example where I felt like the online persona was the true person. Yeah. It was always the other way around. I was always frustrated that that the true person was concealed behind the online mask. Yep. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. I I think there have been times where I've I've actually met people in person after having first met them online and they're always more enjoyable in person, you know. And and I think that just gets to what you're saying that there we see these snapshots of the person online and you get just a more holistic picture in person. Even if it's more complex in person as we are, but yeah, well, you know, it's been a while since I've been on Twitter, but uh, Twitter does this thing and Facebook does it as well, where if you neglect them, they email you. Yeah. And so they will send me all of these things that are meant to entice me to, to come back and take a look at what's happening. (laughs) Tim Keller tweeted this. Right. (laughs) But it's interesting to me to see how similar all of the tweets in the digest are and, and how many of them are just like sharing a link and then, you know, writing, Oh, shame. This is shameful. How you should be ashamed, you know, that sort of thing. And so people who I'm guessing, you know, in, in ordinary life have more thoughtful responses. It seems like, you know, on the medium, at least what, what's sort of making the email just suggests now, we're all just part of an online mob and, and we're just thinking more and more like one another and that kind of thing. The reason why it is a source of, I don't know, frustration slash interest to me is because I don't think it's possible for us to eliminate this sort of medium from our lives. You know, I, I realize that, you know, in times of frustration, I often say as a pastor that, you know, in any counseling scenario, if I could get you to do one thing and one thing only, it would be to delete your social media accounts or just not look at them. Mm -hmm. And that that would probably have more impact on your um, 
you know, sense of self-worth, your uh, borderline depression, like all of those things might actually be really helped just by taking that one step. And yet, realistically, I understand that's not always possible. And as we, you know, have discovered in the commentary, even if you personally disengage from those things, that doesn't mean you'll be out of the loop entirely. You know, in the same way that when I took a fast from the news, I actually knew everything that was going on because everybody was talking about all of the big headlines and and I was a lot less ill-informed than I was hoping to be. And I think this is the same way. It's it's part of our lives, whether directly or indirectly, and it affects people that we care about. And so we need to think carefully about how we how we behave online and what patterns of speech communication we indulge in online. Because even though I think there's a difference between our online personas and who we are in reality, it's also possible that those online personas can shape and change the way we think and behave in our everyday worlds. Mm. And so, you know, while I say I think the, the real life person is the true expression I do think that in real life, people are becoming more like their online worlds, mm-hmm. more divided, uh, more simplistic in their thinking, uh, more convinced of their sort of tribal rightness, and less, not just less open, but less able to hear what other people are actually thinking. So we want to be on guard, especially I think as Christians, we have to be really conscious of how we behave in the public square, even if that public square is online. I've got a few thoughts. I'm thinking I'm thinking of the way that we, we build our personas online and it, like you said, starts to shape who we actually are, shapes how we think, see the world. And one example is just the perfectly curated Instagram feed, which can be a work of art on the, you know, sometimes, but also can be sort of this strange attempt to, to create a persona, a vibe, you know, right, an, an right. aesthetic. Yeah. And and then it's like you can't associate with anything other than that one that one look that one aesthetic and and that to me seems like i don't i don't know i guess i don't know i don't know how that translates to the real world but the other example that i'm thinking of is i had a i had a student in when i was teaching high school and we were having a conversation once about like what do you want to do when you grow up and this one student said that she just wanted to be famous <laughs> and, and I, yeah, and I thought she was, she was joking and we actually got to talk and she's like, no, I just really want to be famous. Like I want people to, to know me and to love me. And, and I was, you know, I thought about that for a long time. I'm like, where, why, like, where did that come from? Why, where do you get that idea? And I, and I was, I don't totally know, but I think a lot of it comes out of like the age of social media where to be liked and known online is like the greatest thing. It's the greatest heights and it's, it's all consuming and it actually is impacting like the trajectory of her life. Like this is what I'm going to do. 
and social media is sort of the tool to get me there. Right. So there's a couple of areas here I think that we're thinking about. Mm-hmm. One of them is, you know, in the old days, we used to say things like, um, you know, I, I'm worried that, you know, young women are getting their ideas of beauty from fashion magazines. And yeah. these, these ideas are unrealistic. And now that seems quaint, like the idea of people reading magazines and, and you know, being shaped by, you know, a handful of ads they, they see there. If only we could get back to that, <laughs> right. uh, you might be able to address the problem. Whereas now it's not one segment of the population, it's, it's everybody. Mm-hmm. And the shaping is much more total than that, it's not just flipping through and seeing a few ads. I mean, it's everything that's coming at you that can have that effect. And so I think that the idea of the online world as a shaping influence is one that we have to be really conscious of as Christians. But there's another aspect that I think for this episode might be good to to think about, and it has to do more with the distinction between public and private you know, if you think about the way that we have had this sort of evolving understanding of what it is we're doing online, originally, people thought of the online world as a, an anonymous place and a private place. Mm-hmm. And you remember a certain period, I can't put you know years on this, but where people would express outrage that when they were applying for jobs, their potential employers had looked at their online accounts and not hired them because, you know, they saw photos of, of, you know, immaturity or whatever, reading sort of their past uh, writings. And, and there was a sense of like, that stuff's private. (laughs) You know what, how dare they go and look at these things that I put on the internet just for me and my friends. Now, now I think we have a more realistic sense that when you publish things to the world, they're not private, they're public. Mm-hmm. But that too, rather than sort of leading us to, to dial back what we're willing to put out there, I think has, has added fuel to the flame. So now we're all publishing for the world all sorts of things, often without considering mm-hmm. very deeply what it is that we're actually saying. So that presents a unique dilemma for believers in Christ, because we don't have the luxury of just putting out there whatever we want to say, expressing whatever we want to say, and not thinking about, number one, the morality of it, whether or not what we're saying is is uh, true, good, and beautiful, and honoring to Christ, and number two, the impact that our words have on what we might say, like the reputation of the gospel or something, mm-hmm. you know, and I think both of those things are things we need to be conscious of, that that we need to hold ourselves to a higher standard in the way that we communicate. And we also need to be conscious that as we represent ourselves as followers of Christ, the things that we say in the public square are seen in that light. So when you're posting, you know, hey, I was just at church and don't I love Jesus? And then tomorrow you're posting all sorts of trollish diatribes. Mm-hmm. All that stuff is is packed together mm-hmm. and, and people see it as part of a whole. Mm-hmm. So 
having a way to, to think about that is really important. And I, I think in the church, we're really struggling because so many of us have this idea that the, the only really guiding principle here is the First Amendment, that this is all just about freedom and you should be free to express whatever you want to express. And anybody who's critical of, you know, me sharing my views, how I want to share them, just has a problem with freedom. Mm-hmm. But there's more to it than that, at least from a Christian point of view. Yeah. I think the private-public distinction is helpful for me because, you know, if I, if I would want to go online and rant about something that I feel passionately about, I'm, I'm mostly thinking about like my friends who are going to be reading that thing and like giving me likes. Like, yeah, like your, your opinion is correct and, right. and we approve, but I don't often think about, in fact, I probably never think about like all of the other people out there because mm-hmm. it is a public space now who are going to read, see this thing. And I have no clue what they might even think about it. So it just, yeah, it just reminds me that it really is a, it's a public space now. And of course there are private spaces on the internet and that's kind of a different discussion. You know, the rise of Reddit is very fascinating to me. It's like this like subculture, subculture thing where people are having more private discussions, but it's still public. But anyway, yeah, I think just keeping, keeping in mind that the internet is so public now, it's almost like you're, you're just, you're doing it out. And, you know, as if you're doing it in public, in person. Right. I guess is the way I'm thinking about it. Yeah. And and so knowing that, what it means is that when we want to share our opinions, when we want to advocate for the things we believe in, mm-hmm. all of that, we have to do it in such a way that we're keeping front and center that, those Christian commitments and the way that Christ has called us to uh, to, to communicate, mm-hmm. to guard our speech, to show respect for other people, all of the things that are really fundamental to how a Christian would behave in face-to-face conversation. All of those things apply in our online world as well. So I would say, you know, one thing we might begin with is just telling ourselves, Maybe I don't get to rant about things online. You know, maybe that's not one of the options that I have. Mm-hmm. And for some people, just hearing that, it, it seems inconceivable. Like, if I don't have the right to rant online, what freedom do I have at all? Yeah, there are people that are wrong on the internet. Right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But, but there are higher commitments than venting your opinions or lashing out at other people for not agreeing with you. And I, that, to me, is the real concern, that that the difference of opinion oftentimes becomes permission to treat people the way we think they, quote-unquote, deserve to be treated based on their wrong beliefs. And so you see the, the incivility, the harshness, in some cases just real ugliness directed towards people, and, and this is coming from the mouths of those who claim to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. But because it's happening online, because it's happening in an already heated environment, people give themselves permission 
to do things that they wouldn't allow themselves, at least I hope they wouldn't, Mm -hmm. in real life. I'm thinking back to our conversation about human sacrifice the other week. And it seems to me that we are much more prone (laughs) to throw people under the bus, like we said, on the internet, to dehumanize others on the internet because they just seem less human. They seem like pixels or whatever. And, and I think that's part of the reason why the internet has become so toxic in some ways is it's just easy to, to discard others, the humanity of others, instead of considering them, loving them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think social media in particular encourages, um, you know, having takes on everything. So you're essentially operating as a pundit. You have no real expertise, but you have an opinion about whatever's going on today and you're passionate about it. And it also seems to prioritize a certain harshness or a polarized way of thinking. So it's not enough to, to articulate your views. It's, it's often really important to have, uh, let's say, a really simplistic sort of judgment of the opposing side. So the, the bitterness of the exchange is something that we kind of take for granted now, you know, and, and we're, we're less sensitive to it online certainly than we would be in real life if if people at church were speaking to one another in real life the way they are sometimes speaking to one another on the internet we would be shocked by it yeah it's only because it's happening in this 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 mysterious sort of virtual place that we're not quite sure what norms apply but but there's also kind of a, a larger cultural consideration we live in a very moralistic age. Um, Joseph Bottom, in his book, An Anxious Age, describes, you know, this is a period where, where we basically live a social gospel without the gospel. You know, so all of our focus is on social transformation, on essentially, he would say, uh, justifying ourselves, showing that we're righteous by holding the right opinion about social ills. And so it's become really important for people to have all of these positions on all of these different things and then to argue over what the right positions are on all of these different things, even though realistically your opinion about these things has very little impact on the world around you and changes very little. And so all of the hostility, um, I think almost... (sighs) It, it it tends to grow more intense as it becomes more futile, as we we uh, yell at one another over things that we are, you know, only disagreeing on on minor points, or regardless what either of us think about them, it's not going to make a difference in in the overall world. And we give ourselves permission to do it because we think the most important thing is is that we be free, that that we have the right to say whatever we want to say, and if anybody has a problem with it, then that's their problem. Mm-hmm. So, if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this, you go right ahead and <laughs> and keep on doing what you're doing. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I just want you to consider uh, a few guardrails. When we were in adult Sunday school working through chapter 20 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, we were talking about Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. So liberty just means freedom. 
And on the commentary recently, we've talked about religious liberty. We've talked about freedom and, and the contours of that and the importance of it. But at the very end of that chapter, there's a fascinating paragraph which is essentially telling us that, that Christian freedom is no excuse to do a series of things. And then it tells us it's no excuse to oppose lawful power. It's no excuse to oppose lawful power when it's lawfully exercised, whether that's civil or ecclesiastical power. So I may have Christian liberty, but that doesn't give me the right to oppose God-ordained authority when it's doing what it's meant to be doing the way that it's meant to do those things, whether we're talking about civil authorities or church authorities, I can't stand behind the, the, the defense of Christian liberty to justify my rebellion against those things. Hmm. It also says that we can't stand behind Christian liberty when we publish opinions or we maintain practices that are contrary to what the divines call the light of nature, or to the known principles of Christianity, whether they have to do with faith or worship or life. So it says, you're not free to communicate things that are wrong by their very nature and their content, but also that we're not free to communicate anything that is wrong in its manner, wrong in the way that it is communicated. Mm. So you can see the distinction. Like it, It's not just you're not free to say false things. It's that you're not free to say true things badly or malevolently or hatefully. That's the part of the equation that I want to call to people's attention. That, again, Westminster Confession speaking to us outside of our own times is reminding all Christians that the way that we communicate our positions and the way that we practice our beliefs must be informed by Christian wisdom, must follow after the example of Jesus Christ. And if not, they say, then we can be called to account for it and proceeded against. Like we're subject to correction when these expectations are not met. Now, I'm not saying that at Grace, we're going to start monitoring everybody's social media and disciplining everyone who, who isn't being gracious online. But I do encourage everyone who's active online to recommit themselves to being gracious and Christ-like, not only in what they believe, but in how they share it and how they speak to other people about it. Yeah, I'm thinking of Paul's famous words about love in 1 Corinthians 13, where his his symbol is you know if i if i don't have love all the other stuff is like a noisy gong or symbol right and so much of social media to me just sounds that way <laughs> and i think it is often because it is lacking in that sort of love for the other for the other person um or love for the authorities under which we might be you know happen to sit but don't act that way when we're online right no, I think that's a good point. So I think to kind of maybe bring it to a, a head slash close, maybe we could talk about some practical 
uh, advice, you know, and, and I'll start off here just by saying that, that if, if you're going to be active online, I think it really benefits you to reflect on the limitations of the medium. One of the reasons why some of these interactions are so frustrating and therefore, you know, polarize us and lead us maybe to go farther than we would in everyday life is that we're often attempting to do something that the medium really doesn't lend itself to. Uh, We've talked about Twitter earlier, and I think whether it's Twitter or Instagram comments, I'm always astonished when people think that they're going to be able to write persuasive essays on a medium like that, you know, and include, you know, what they think are really profound thoughts in the tight confines Mm -hmm. of that space. It's very difficult, I think, to do any sort of education or persuasion on social media effectively. I'm not saying it can't be done, but I think the people who do it well work really hard at it, and most people who attempt it do not work nearly so hard. And so the those limitations are real, and the more you're aware of them, the easier it'll be for you to kind of pick and choose your battles uh, to say, you know what, I, I'm probably going to let this one go. I, I'm not going to get involved in this. There's no way that I'm going to be able to communicate what I actually believe in, you know, a hundred and however many characters you're allowed or a few sentences even. And and if I go beyond that and start, you know, posting paragraphs, uh, no one's going to read them. Mm-hmm. Again, nature of the medium, right? So if you're just conscious of those constraints, I think it really help you moderate the kind of behavior that tends to set us off. So that's one thought. Yeah. I've got another one. Okay. It's related to that. And I think just knowing why you're on social media or more specifically why you're on Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or wherever you are, like having a goal in mind, not just in a general sense, like, oh, I have my Twitter account so that I can connect with people. But like every time you go on the app, like think about that goal. Like this is why... I'm doing this right now because like we've sort of talked about today, like social media along with the internet has really morphed over the last 10, 20 years. I mean, it's changing all the time. And I think as it changes, we need to think about how our expectations of those apps change and how our goals, our purposes for using them change as well. So for me, I I keep Twitter mostly just to like, find interesting resources, mm-hmm. links, you know, people link to, to cool other stuff, but I'm not really there to engage people. Frankly, I'm not even there to read just to like gather sources that has helped me actually gain some value from it and maybe contribute in a small way, but without feeling like I need to get sucked into arguments or something. No, that's a good tip. That's a good tip. <laughs> okay. I have another one. Okay. Um, I want to say it really helps if you can intentionally pursue a better balance between your online life and your everyday life or face-to-face life, let's say. Um, I started doing this, I don't know, it's been a few years now where I became convinced that my mind was rotting and my memory was deteriorating 
and I was losing the ability to immerse myself and do like in-depth reading because I was sort of becoming more conformed to kind of, you know, the scrolling through and, and just skimming things mm-hmm. briefly. And so I tried to push back against that and, and retrain myself to do the longer, deeper stuff. And that meant carving time, you know, taking time away from the more trivial, you know, scrolling. In the same way, though, I think there's a need to do that balancing in terms of how we pursue community, where a lot of us are pursuing a sense of community primarily online we need to retrain ourselves to seek community in the real world. I'm not saying online communities can't be real, or that online friendships don't have a reality to them, but human beings, we're embodied creatures, and no online community is going to be a substitute for a real community that you can you know, live alongside. So... I'm not saying, you know, get off the internet and and go to the park and only talk to people you can see face to face. But I do think we should kind of force ourselves back into more of those interactions, especially if you find yourself because of your schedule, uh, able to spend a lot more time online than you could in community situations in real life. Maybe change that schedule or limit your online time don't use all of the sort of available time for that, you know, like, Mm -hmm. like try to find that balance. If you're only able to do a little bit, you know, three hours of face-to-face community in a week, then maybe don't do more than three hours online either. You know, I don't know. There's, Mm -hmm. there's a balance Mm -hmm. to be found there and it may look different for each person, but I've spoken to a number of people recently who were actually like getting dumb phones and yeah. intentionally limiting their ability to just go online all the time. So they have to be more intentional about doing that. And it's exactly for this reason to be able to reclaim that balance. So if you're finding it difficult to communicate in Christ-like ways, uh, if you're looking back on your interactions and you're worried that you're not, um, you're not doing what you want to do, then maybe... Start looking for that balance so that you can get more control over that. Mm-hmm. I love that idea. And I have one last one that's related to the last two. I have become an advocate for really just telling people, like, you don't have to do this either. <laughs> we said at the beginning that this is a part of our world. And, and I think that's true. But also, you don't. Like you don't need to be on all the apps, right? You, you know, maybe, maybe you should be on one or two or maybe not. And more and more, I just keep telling people that ask, like, it's okay if you, if you don't want to do this. And, and I think that maybe the challenge is that most people do want to do it, but with enough persuasion and thinking and getting plugged into real community, it's like, oh yeah, like the online stuff, it's kind of secondary compared to this, like robust life that I'm building here. So I've, I've slowly started to remove some apps from my own life and I find it fine. You know, life goes on. Exactly. <laughs> behold. Exactly. I think if you can't play nice, then you could walk away. Exactly. 
And I think that's important because all too often what I hear people saying who struggle with this, who have a real problem, is that, you know, they, they, they can't walk away from it. You know, they have to be engaged with this. And the fact that other people trigger them is not their fault. But in any other circumstance, you would say, well, just, just don't do that thing. Don't go to that place. You know, if, if you're like, every time I start drinking, I end up drunk. I was like, you know what? I, I know what you should do. You should not start, yeah. you know, like, like avoid the bar if you're not going to get out of there on two feet, you know, that's going to be subjective. Like every person has, has different capacities, but if, if it's not something you can handle and still maintain your commitment to Christ, if, if you are not meditating on the right things because of this, then walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Then, then it can't be part of your life. You know, if you can't handle it, just don't do it. Mm-hmm. And that is, it, it sounds impossible, but but once you try it, it can be liberating. I mean, you actually can do that. So I think all that is great advice. And I just want to end with, with one little reflection. And this is, I guess, from the pastoral standpoint, um, I have seen a number of times where people are struggling to find community in real life and they can't understand why it's not happening. They can't understand why they can't connect with people, why it seems like nobody wants to to open up to them or spend time with them or whatever. And the elephant in the room is always the online persona, that the same person who just can't understand why no one wants to hang out with me is busy posting really difficult stuff, insulting things online and doesn't understand that when you speak that way about people, they take that personally. You know, you may say to yourself, well, I didn't mention them by name. I just meant, you know, people who believe things like they believe or people who don't agree with me on this, that or the other. But but the reality is every real life community is always going to have a certain degree of difference. Like you're always going to be, you know, targeting someone that you know whenever you attack your abstract straw men. If you're struggling to find community in your life, I would say the number one thing you need to do is is take a look at that online persona and see if that's not part of the problem. You know, if you're not making yourself unapproachable, if you're not making people afraid to... Uh, be around you because they don't want to trigger you because they don't want to get on your bad side or whatever. If, if you're rage posting online, people in your real life see that and it changes how they interact with you. So again, all of this is really, really simple. You know, there's nothing profound in, in what we've said. We're just saying, If you're going to follow Christ in your life, you should follow him online as well. But hopefully we've we've at least touched on a few of the practical implications so that as we attempt to do that, we'll have a place to start.
As always, thanks for listening to The Commentary. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can rate us on your favorite podcast app and share episodes with your friends on social media. You can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org. 